0: Uh, my name is Brent Corbin. Uh that's my dad Dale, my mom Debbie, and I grew up here in this church uh for many many years until I was 18. Um, so this church raised me. It's uh it's like that Miranda Lambert song, The House That Raised Me. Uh that's how I feel about this church and about so many of you who I get to see periodically, not super often because we have a gaggle of children that keep us busy in Tulsa. Um what Brad asked me to do is for a few minutes share about uh what we're doing right now in ministry and what is kind of coming next for us in ministry. And um so let me just kind of jump in there and then I'll kind of I'll pray for us and we'll transition more into the looking at God's word and what we're actually here for this morning. So for the last uh for the last 8 years, uh, Sarah and I have been serving with a ministry called RUF at the University of Tulsa. RUF stands for Reformed University Fellowship. Um, and we are a campus ministry of of a conservative Presbyterian denomination. Uh, conservative, not politically per se, but theologically conservative. We line up with TBF on the lion's share of everything. And so what you would hear here and study here on a Sunday morning is largely what we're teaching to college students at the University of Tulsa uh, throughout the week. So um, we've been there for eight years. And I'm just going to tell you a little bit about RUF and, and what it is. A little bit about what I've been doing for the last eight years there and then a little bit about what's coming. So, uh, the vision of RUF is, is not inventive. We're not trying to reimagine what college ministry looks like, but there are a few distinctives that help us kind of get our identity on campus. We're trying to reach students with the gospel and equip them to serve, uh, to serve the Lord in all of life, primarily through local churches. And so as we are on campus uh, meeting with college students, leading small groups, training up leaders, student leaders to then go lead small groups in their apartments or in their dorms or with their football team or whatever it may be, um, we are doing all of those things toward the end that they don't just walk away from college saying, oh man, RUF was great, I had this amazing four-year experience, and then they go off and don't know what to do after that. What we're trying to do is to really equip them and in get into the fabric of their lives, thinking that this four years is a little bit of a, it's a microcosm for what the rest of life looks like. That we want to figure out how to uh, get college students to see that the Lord has gifted them uniquely with with gifts and abilities that they can take from these four years in college and then move in more substantially after college into a local church um, and, and use those gifts to serve the body and to reach out to the world in that way. So, not trying to reinvent the wheel, it's the it's the Great Commission, right? It's the Great Commission. We are not a church on campus, but we're an extension of the church there uh, doing this work. A few of the distinctives of that um, are that all of the campus ministers, RUF exists on about 160 campuses across the country, and now five of them internationally. Um, one of the distinctives is that all the campus ministers have been to seminary um, have, have spent years training for ministry, and there's a lot of reasons for that, but one of the least of which is, uh, not the least of which, is that college students are asking real questions. Um, high school students are asking real questions. So imagine that in that next phase of life when they have autonomy, they're out from under mom and dad, and they're making decisions for the first time, well, some of them on their own for the first time. Um, man, they come, and, and it is the gamut of life. And we are there holding out Jesus as really the only means to true and deep life. Um, And what what we have to acknowledge is that there are lots of things in college that promise life, um, that promise joy and all those things. And and we have to acknowledge some of those things are fun, um, but that joy and that fun is is short-lived and it's fleeting and you have to continue to engage it and to add into it for it to actually produce some sort of lasting joy. And we're trying to offer them something so much better. Um, the gospel of Jesus that becomes in them a spring of living water. Um, it doesn't have to continue to, to be renewed. It itself takes on a life of its own as the Spirit indwells them. So um, we serve alongside local churches uh, to try to carry out this mission. How do we do this? Uh, three kind of main aspects: reaching, equipping, and serving. Reaching is obviously kind of the evangelistic aspect of that. Um, we think of ourselves both as a rest stop for weary Christians. And I I would probably put Christians there kind of in air quotes. There's a lot of people who come to college having grown up in the church, and, and many of them are Christians. But as I mentioned a second ago, some of them are really starting to grapple with the claims of Christianity on their own for the first time. And so uh, we aren't there trying to convince them they're not Christians so that we can then evangelize them and notch our belt as getting conversions. That's not what we're doing. But what we do is we encourage them to ask the big questions. We, we encourage them to really delve into the substance of what they say they believe so that their faith, if indeed it is true and authentic, it can test the trials, it can, uh, it can be sustained through the trials of life that no doubt are coming. And so, we're there kind of as a rest stop for the Christians to come and reboot, ask the hard questions. And also, we are there for people who are skeptical, for people on the college campus who, uh, you know, maybe for some reason in their past, maybe through bad experience with family or whatever, that they come in kind of hardened and jaded against the idea of Christianity or the church or whatever it may be. Um, if they will give us an ear... If they'll give us entrance into their lives, usually through the course of playing basketball with them at the gym, or working out with them, or playing ultimate frisbee, or just sitting down and having coffee, um, we're going to try to engage them and let them ask all their questions and bring all of their frustrations. And you got to listen to it. You establish those relationships, and it has been amazing. Um, it's a, it's amazing that college students. I think we sometimes we get to the, the idea that they're just all jaded and they don't care about. They don't care about organized religion at all. That is not true at all. What they don't have time for are placards and billboards and people who are holding up signs and thinking that's what Christianity is. They don't have time for that. I would think most of us don't either. Um, What they want is some sort of relational dynamic where they can engage their questions and have them answered and at least have a chance to ask them and, I mean, just last week, I, I took a guy, and he doesn't even like coffee, but I love coffee. So we went and and got coffee at this fancy little coffee shop in Tulsa, and we walked around downtown for about two hours. And, and I've been meeting with him for three years. and And for two hours, he just kept asking me questions. We're three years into this relationship, and he's still asking me questions about this. And I'm challenging him. I'm challenging his worldview on where he thinks life is going to be found and all of this stuff. And it's real. I don't I don't know what the Lord's going to do with him. Um It seems that there are some real kind of movements in his life, but uh, I'm not I don't have x-ray pastor goggles. I can't see what's happening in there. Um The Lord knows and I'm going to trust him with that. But again, college students are curious. They're not all hardened and jaded like maybe the media would make us think or things like that. What they what they very much enjoy is relational interaction, um, particularly when you have a little bit of gray hair on the side of your head. Um, that doesn't scare them off. There's something in the Bible about there being wisdom there, but I don't know. We have an equipping aspect of what we do. We're we're into making disciples. We're trying to train up and build up students in their faith, and we do that through a lot of means. Uh, on Tuesday mornings, I have a group of student leaders. There's uh, 33 of them this semester, and I'm just, I'm equipping them. I'm giving them apologetic resources. We're reading through kind of uh, articles. Sometimes they're in secular media, and we're trying to diagnose what's going on there and, and what's happening. Sometimes they're just bread and butter Christianity, and I'm, I'm training them up in the foundations of the faith. Other things are kind of how we do this relational evangelism thing. There's lots of different equipping aspects to this. And then serving, I'm trying. Uh, I, me, and the staff along the way, we're trying to equip students to see the gifts that God has given them uh, and how they can use them, not just for these four years in college, but beyond that. And we we very much teach them that being in ministry is no more of a holy calling uh, than being an engineer or an architect or a teacher or a stay at home mom or whatever. That each of those things have particular gifts and particular uh, benefits to the broader kingdom. And also to the culture. So we're not anti-culture. We're trying to enter into culture to redeem it. Because we think Jesus is in the business of redeeming all things. So, we're trying to get them back into the world and not just in a retreatist mindset. We do large group Bible study where I will teach. We'll have music. It kind of looks like a, a church service, but it's not a church service. It lasts about an hour. That's on Wednesday nights. Um, I record those. If, if any of you are super bored and you ever want to listen, you can just... Uh, Get in your Apple Podcasts and type in RUF Tulsa put my name in there. Again, uh, discretion advised for quality. Uh, Small groups, we have, uh, I lead a few small groups. Our our interns lead a few small groups. And this semester we have 11 student-led small groups. Um, I've equipped these leaders. They're in their apartments, in their sorority and fraternities. They're leading small groups with their friends. And that is super encouraging because um, if you think that, that I get access into their lives, what happens when their peers sit down with them, they get all the access. It's unfiltered. And so we think that is crucial to the mission going forward. And then one-on-ones, uh, we will sit down with students and, like I said, have coffee, go on walks, have lunch, um, and we'll meet them where they are. Some of that's evangelism. Some of that's discipleship. Some of that is counseling through crisis. Um, there's all kinds of stuff there. And then we have a lot of fun uh, because turns out Christians of all people should have the most fun. We have the most reason to have fun. Uh, the world has hijacked our view on joy. Um, the next role that I'm moving into with RUF, so this is my last semester on campus uh, at the University of Tulsa. Um, I've been asked to, to be what's called an, an area coordinator with RUF. And what that means is that um, I will be overseeing uh, the works, the, the campus works on 16 different schools, um in kind of this region of the country, I'll show you the region in just a little bit. But the purpose of an area coordinator is right there on the screen to strengthen the church through the cultivation of healthy campus ministers and therefore healthy campus ministries. And there's three kind of roles within that a shepherd, so I'm doing a lot of pastoring of the campus ministers, those who are on campus. Um, I'm training them, co- coaching them. That word gets thrown around a lot in our day, it's kind of a weird word. Um, and then a consultant, and that's an even weirder word, and I'll explain that in a second. So as a shepherd, um, I'm committed to the ongoing personal and spiritual formation um, of the campus ministers and their families. So each semester during the school year, uh, I will make visits to all of these 16 campuses. I'll spend a day or two with the campus minister, with his wife, with their family. And think of me as, as a pastor to the pastors, and um, we we really believe that in ministry it's very possible to feel isolated, particularly in some uh, college campuses where you may not have a robust local church system um, kind of that, that gets what you're doing super well. And so we want to make sure that we're not sending families out there to just go die on the vine. We're trying to support them and encourage them and equip them and pastor them as best we can. And so we've had someone visiting us for the last eight years every semester, and that's what I'll be doing now. Um, I'll be entering a phase where I do a lot of marriage counseling with the ministers and their wives because uh, news flash, pastors aren't perfect husbands. Um, I know that's really surprising, but um, you know, these marriages are they're real. they're just like your marriages if you're marriage, if, if you're married. Um, you're dealing with life, you're dealing oftentimes with young children, which is very hard. <laughs> Um, you're dealing with parenting, we try to help pastors grow in self-awareness, just what their gifts are and what their weaknesses are, and I'll try to come alongside them and help them figure out, you know, how they need to to train up students around them to, to offset their weaknesses and how they can leverage their strengths for the glory of God and the extension of the gospel on these campuses. And we'll continue just to develop them in, in different ways and shepherd them. And then as a coach or a trainer... Um, the business world has long has long realized that there is tremendous benefit in having people who have been around the block kind of enter into that middle management role to train the people younger than them and to teach them you know, the tricks of the trade and the tools of the trade. That's really this aspect, is that not that I've done everything right for the last eight years, but in some ways I've just done it. And so I'll be kind of passing on some best practices and and this and that. And as I go and visit them, I'll be able to help them diagnose what's happening on their campus um, and then help them in those ways. And there's a, a list of reasons there, or a list of specific applications. And then consulting. This is really the aspect of um, the job where I am in charge of, in the the. Campuses that I'll be over. So that's Oklahoma University, Oklahoma State University, University of Tulsa, University of Arkansas, University of Central Arkansas in Conway, uh, Memphis, uh, University of Memphis, Rhodes College, uh, Ole Miss, University of Mississippi in Oxford, Mississippi State University, Delta State University, Bellhaven University in Jackson, Mississippi, Mississippi College in Jackson, Mississippi, Jackson State University in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, University of Southern Mississippi in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge, and then Tulane University in New Orleans. So that will be my area. It's spread out, and um, the consulting area of that is that as uh, as people move on from being campus minister, much like I'm doing, um, I help the local churches in those those regions, what we call presbyteries. I help them identify and locate the people who will be who they should fill the campus with. Um, we we train and we vet um, people who want to do Ruf kind of as a clearinghouse, and then we give them names of people to go do the uh, those jobs. So that's a high overview. Um, and then lastly, we're, we're finding trying to find people who will partner with us in this. Um, many of you have done that for the last eight years, or some of you at least. And just hear me say thank you. But also know this, as a church, as you support the work and mission of Tanglewood Bible Fellowship, you have been supporting what we're doing already. Um, this church supports us on a monthly basis um, generously, and so thank you. Thank you. And as far as you are giving to this church and part of its work, even through giving your gifts, um, you are involved with us in the past, and we say thank you. If you want to talk to me more about what that looks like going forward, um, you can grab me after the service. Um, I'll give you my email. We can talk more, anything like that. So that's what I'm doing. Now this is why you really came. Let's look at God's Word together. Let me pray for us before we look at Ephesians chapter 4. And pardon my allergies, they are in full effect. Let's pray. Father, thank You for uh, this morning. Thank You that You are a good God who loves when Your people are gathered, when we worship You. Um, You love it when we hear Your voice. Um, You tell us, In John chapter 10, the sheep will hear your voice. And so I pray this morning that as I speak and as you speak through me and as we all collectively come and listen, that we would hear your voice. I pray that we would be encouraged, that we would be challenged. I pray that the gospel would would renew our hearts again, that it would reinvigorate us, that it would strengthen us for the journey. And um, I pray for those in here who are particularly burdened, uh, who are. Uh, weakened just through the struggles of life, be they emotional or physical, vocational, relational, any of those sorts of things, I pray that You would um, really, in a very specific way, that You would meet with us. Um, I pray that um, the meditations uh, of all of our hearts and the words of my mouth would be pleasing in Your sight. O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I have a friend who... um, a little while ago, a few months ago actually, sent me a, a link to a short film, a little documentary film, probably on Netflix or Hulu or something, and it was called One Way to Mars. And One Way to Mars, was a it's a 12-minute video of the lives of five people who were among 200,000 people who applied to take a one-way flight to Mars. Just let that sink in for a second. There were 200,000 people who applied to take a one-way flight to Mars. Let me give you a few of the quotes of the people who actually got selected to do this. There was one guy who was trying to, to make it as a baseball player um, in the professional, league, the professional ranks, so he had been floating around the farm systems, kind of the developmental leagues for a number of years, and if you know anything about that, it is a brutal way to try to make a living. Um, you get paid peanuts and essentially have to travel. It's hard if you have a family and all this. So he said this. He said, my life is kind of boring. I'm just a normal guy. I just kind of float. I don't have any necessary direction. And once I heard about this trip, it kind of called out to me. And I thought, why don't I, why don't I donate my myself? And then he laughs and he says, I totally see it as a voluntary do- donation to something bigger than myself, something historic even. Here's something which is a T in the road in making this decision, which I would say impacts everybody's life, is something I want to do. There's another guy, the film who the film portrayed as kind of a a loner figure, who he would just go to work and and come home and sit in front of his TV or play video games, and really, in all uh, on all accounts, a loner. And he said this: He said, "I want to go to Mars because it would give me another purpose for living." In a way, it would renew my purpose. I would have a greater use of myself for the rest of humankind. And then there was a guy who was a beekeeper. Got any beekeepers in the room? Great, one. There we go. Katie Davis. Katie, you do everything. I'm just, I saw eggs in there. <coughs> you keep chickens and bees. Um, anyway, the beekeeper said, it's the fact that we're trying something and that I would be remembered. That's three of the five. I'll get to one of the other ones in a minute. What's interesting about those comments and really the others too is it gets at the reality that at some point in our life, for many of you, it's happened multiple times to this point. Some of you are starting to ask these questions. You do look yourself in the mirror or you lay your head on the pillow or as you're driving down the road, you ask those bigger questions. What am I doing? What's my life about? What am I here for? Am I living for anything that really matters? And one of, the, one of the things that this film kind of exploits and you see is that people are constantly kind of touching on those questions. I want to be remembered. I'm looking for a new purpose. I want to give myself to something bigger than myself. Through this ridiculous, what I think is ridiculous, avenue of a one-way flight to Mars it touches at some of those most basic existential searching questions that everyone asks. What am I doing? Who am I? A few weeks ago when I mentioned to Brad that I was going to preach on this passage from Ephesians chapter 4, he said, oh great, that's one of our core passages here at Tanglewood. And then I got nervous because I thought, gosh, I don't want to like derail the ship and say something that's not core to TBF. Um. So if that happens, just strike it from the record. Um, But the more I look at this passage, it's just hard to do that. Because Paul, the Apostle Paul is so straightforward in this passage, it's almost impossible to mess it up. I'll try my best. But it is almost impossible to deviate from the main message that he's getting him. And in in this passage, in no uncertain terms, he's, he's saying this and he's offering this. He's saying that if you are in Christ, if you have committed yourself to Christ, if Christ has committed Himself to you, then that gives you purpose. Then that defines what your life is about. That gives you a reason for living. It is the something bigger than yourself. It is the anchor point of your life. It is your everything. And what I want us to do as we read this and talk about it for a few minutes, is I want us to see how through Christ and the necessary joining ourselves to His church, to His body, we gain all of those things. The mooring for our ship, we gain the direction for our life, the anchor for our souls, however it is you want to say it, we get all of those things, and I would suggest, in a way that you will not find them anywhere else in the world, not even on a one-way trip to Mars. So this is God's word beginning in verse one. I'm going to read verses one through six through just for a little bit of context, but mainly looking at verses seven through 16. This is the apostle Paul speaking as God's mouthpiece. It says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when He ascended on high, He led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Parenthetical statement here by Paul. In saying He ascended, What does it mean but that He had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that He might fill all things. Verse 11, And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that, The word that the Apostle Paul uses throughout the book of Ephesians, and Brad, I'm sure, has talked about this before, but um, hey, we're people, we forget things, so here we go. The word that Paul uses when he talks about the church is the word ecclesia or ecclesia, which literal translation of that, it just means the called out ones. Those who have been called out from the broader humanity to be a specific uh, agents and ambassadors for God in His kingdom. We are called out as a distinct people. And so, as that happens, and as we are called out, He is saying that we are called out from that, that ambiguous, eventual, lifeless mission that the world is embracing. We are called out to this new mission that is life-giving, that becomes a self-replicating gene as the Holy Spirit indwells us We are called out from that mission. We are called into this new mission of God that is enacted through the church. Jesus' body. And so as we're called out, we're called into something else. We're called away from a lifestyle and a worldview that that says it's about us and it's about self-promotion and about self-protection and about self-evaluation and about self-everything. And we're called into a way of living that is inherently and necessarily focused on giving ourselves away for the glory of God and for the good of others. So we're called out of that and into this. Verses 1-6, through six, which we won't focus on, Paul's just setting up how when that happens, when those called out people begin to do this, that it unifies us in a very particular way. And in ways where it doesn't, we're called to work on that so that we will be unified in mission. As we impact the world with the gospel and as we build up one another in the faith. But in verses 7 through 16, it's kind of part B of that. Unity, verses 1 through 6, part 7, or 7 through 16 is part B and it is mission. It's what do we do as a called out people? How are we called and what are we called to? And there's three things I want us to see. The first is that we are called to generosity. You know, Put the other one up there, but that was not supposed to be there. That's my second point. Get ready for it. <clears throat> Call to generosity. This may be the only time you hear a minister say generosity, which doesn't come with uh, an application to money. So, yay. Uh, so, but here we go. We're called to generosity. And it's appropriate because in verse 7, the Apostle Paul is saying that Christians among all people are called to be generous because we... Are the collective recipients of God's generosity. We are the collective recipients of God's generosity. That Jesus Himself, flowing into verse eight, He has given us gifts. He has given us gifts. As He ascends to heaven after His resurrection, it says that He He gives gifts. He leads them in procession and gives gifts to all men. What's happening here? Well, in the ancient world, when a general or a conquering king would, would come back from a battle or from a war endeavor, they would come back to the capital city or, or the, the city of the, the capital of the empire, and they would have in their procession captives, people that they had captured from the conquered country and the conquered territory. And in addition to the captives, they would have spoils of war and they would make this huge procession through the city and through the uh, the capital and they would parade themselves and the people would be cheering yay you're awesome go king and we see some of this with king david that you know um Saul killed his thousands but david his tens of thousands that's the kind of picture we get these big processions and cheering what would also happen though is that as the spoils were brought through the city They would throw them out into the crowd. Not all of them, because kings after all had to be the richest. But they would throw some of the spoils of war out into the crowd and they would distribute the wealth, they would distribute the goods. Now look at verse 8. If you have your Bible open. Look at what it says right there. That as Jesus ascends to heaven, He led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. This is Baker Mayfield planting the flag on the Ohio State 50-yard line. It's a gift to all OU fandom. This is Elon Musk taking a Tesla car up into the atmosphere and releasing it so that all techies and, and people who love that kind of stuff can say, oh, that's just the best thing ever. Jesus has won the decisive victory over sin and death of the cross and he is alive in the resurrection and he ascends to heaven and what does he do? He celebrates and he distributes the gifts to his church and says, I am giving everything that is mine. I'm giving it to you. Now what are the gifts that he gives? He gave the apostles, verse 11, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Now look, let's just say right here, this is not an exhaustive list of gifts. Um, (laughs) There will only be a few of us in the room who would be recipients of this. That would be sad. This is just one of the places where Paul talks about the breadth of gifts that Jesus gives to his church. The specific context here is that he's saying that these gifts are given... Because these particular pastors and prophets and evangelists, and then the apostles, which were the first century, uh, you know, Cohen, people who were with Jesus, leaders of the church, that they then move out and equip the other saints for the work of ministry, and their gifts become go on display. So the gifts that he gives out right here are in limited in scope, but elsewhere they are very much expanded. And so what that means, and you can catch this, what that means necessarily is that if you are in Christ, if you are someone who is placing your even your weak faith in that strong Savior Jesus, then He has given you gifts. He's given you gifts. Not the people around you, though them also. He has given you gifts. You have something you can do. You have something with which you've been given, with which you were called to give away. Now, a few implications of that that if you want to try and figure out what those spiritual gifts are, then I'd suggest asking yourself, what is it that you naturally do well that you think can have application for the people around you? What do you do well that you could say, you know, if I just kind of turned it this way, I could serve people at TBF, or I could turn around and serve at Gabriel's house, or I could go on this mission trip over here, or I could just turn to my coworkers at work and serve them. I think the specific application here is for the church, but it can extend beyond that. So what are you good at? Our gifts aren't like a third arm that we develop and it's like, oh my gosh, now I'm amazing at this random thing over here. No, our gifts are just, a lot of times are the things that you're naturally good at. Sometimes that's hard to identify. So I would suggest asking people around you who know you well, hey, what am I good at? Not in a pompous, arrogant, sort of searching way, but what do you think I'm good at? Hey, church members, hey, small group, hey, elders, hey, elders, what am I good at? I'm having trouble seeing where I fit into this thing. Help me. In a third resort, I would say you could go online and take some quizzes, but fair warning, those get pretty weird pretty quick. So, eh, maybe not so much with that. Alright, so we're called to generosity. The main thing I want us to see is that if, if, if Jesus has won the victory then He is the consummate victorious King and He has given gifts to His people. He is generous. And we in turn are called to be generous with the gifts we've received. But He goes on He says that we're called to ministry. And that's the second thing which I've previewed for you already. Verses 12 and 13. Look back with me. It says that He has given these gifts to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we attain to the unity of the faith in the knowledge of the Son of God. Paul's saying that uh, that Jesus gave some people these teaching and preaching gifts so that we can share our particular gifts, the preachers and teachers, with all of you so that you could be built up and head out into ministry. I know Brad says this ad nauseum here all the time. That it's not just the professional paid Christians who are called to the work of ministry. We are all called to engage in this thing called the mission of God, the Great Commission. We are all called to the work of ministry. Uh, A few years ago, as I was teaching through the book of Ephesians uh, on campus, I told students that the primary place for them to grow as Christians and to live out the Christian life is a local church, because that's the kind of things I tell college students. It's not a campus ministry. The primary place for them to grow and flourish and live out their calling as disciples of Jesus is in the context of a local church. And the reason that I say that is because Paul, here as a mouthpiece of God, is saying that. <laughs> and he says that because that the purpose of this is to build up the church because the church together corporately as we bring all of our varied gifts together We are the means by which Jesus is changing and redeeming this world. The Great Commission was not given to a bunch of siloed Christians. It wasn't given to individuals. It was given to the corporate people standing there listening as Jesus gives it to them and says, Alright, all right, y'all, let's go do this. Go, therefore. Make disciples teaching them all these things, baptizing them in the of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what I tell college students, as I said, that means necessarily that the most spiritual thing you can do is not to go out on a canoe on a lake on a Sunday morning and be at peace with God. It's God's creation and we can enjoy those things rightly, but the most spiritual thing you can do is roll out of bed with your disheveled hair, throw on last night's clothes, and go to that church down the street. And go sit there and be a part of that. And even more than that, to in a very meaningfully way, join that place. Whether that's through formal membership or not. I'm not into all that stuff right now. Go be a part of it. Take your gifts and join with that place. Because we are all called to ministry and Jesus gives His marching orders to ministry to the church. So, uh, life with Jesus in the woods sounds nice, or with Jesus on the golf course, believe me, that sounds great. It's just not necessarily the biblical prescriptive way that we're going to grow in Christ and serve and advance the mission of God. Okay? So, uh, the implications here for us are these. First, is that this is freeing. This is very freeing for us. Because when Paul says that it builds up the body of Christ, that the work of ministry builds up the body of Christ, Elsewhere, he elaborates and says, in effect, that some of you are going to be arms, and some of you will be feet, and some of you will be eyes, and some of you are are noses, and all these different things. In in short, he's laboring to say that a human body needs all of these things, and and we know that intuitively. Some of you uh, don't have all the access of those things anymore, and you feel that. It's a discomfort, it's frustrating, it's annoying. I've been down in my back for the last two weeks, and when you have four small kids... That just means you pray for my wife, because it has been awful, and I feel it. The human body is meant to work collectively together to carry this out. But here's why this is freeing. It's because it means that you aren't all of them. that you're not everything. You're not the, the eyes and the, and the ears and the nose and the back and the legs and the arm. You're something, but you aren't everything. And for some of you who are just exhausted through doing everything or feeling like the church rests on your shoulders, you need to step back and actually trust Jesus that in letting a few balls drop, some of the people who have been lurking in the shadows here have been waiting to see where they might serve. But because you're doing 12 things, they just haven't been able to see that. And so if you're exhausted, If you're constantly anxious about everything that has to happen in order for this certain thing over here to happen or all these certain things to happen, you can step back and say, I'm an arm. And that leg over there needs to walk into this place or needs to come to women's Bible study or to men's fellowship and see that they're going to lead the icebreaker, that they're going to lead the Bible study that week, that they're going to set out chairs, that they're going to do the grounds, that they're going to clean up the playground. You can't do everything. You are something, but you're not everything. And I hope that frees you. It also has a means, though, of empowering you. Because not only is the gospel freeing for those of us who overwork and are anxious, but it also empowers those of us who who conceptually know that we have something to give but haven't quite found the application for that. On authority of Jesus, I'm looking at you and saying, He has given you a gift, if not multiple gifts. He's saying you have something to give. So, maybe you don't know that right now. But show up at stuff. Show up early and you'll figure out you're probably needed. Go talk to Brad. Go talk to James. Go talk to the elders. Go talk to anyone here who's kind of serving in some sort of leadership or unofficial service capacity. Ask them how you can help offer yourself. And I bet over time, they will give you things. And then you'll become... The do it all person, and then you'll have to step back and that's how all this works, but. <coughs> but don't miss what God's doing in our midst. So, quick points of application before we move to our third point. What is keeping you from, from using and exercising your gifts? Maybe it's selfishness. Maybe it's selfishness. Maybe you actually, this morning, need to begin a process of, of, fancy word, a process of repentance, of just looking at yourself and beginning to own that I am functionally living my life about me. I've made it about me in my free time. I've made it about me when I come here on Sunday mornings. I've made it about me at work. I've made it about me. Lord Jesus, I confess that to you Change me. I'm to be about you and others. Help me loosen my grip on me so that I can be loosened up for others. Others of you, it's that you need an outlet. Maybe you need to... Um, maybe you need to stop dating this church or other churches and finally just marry one. (laughs) Stop hopping around and looking for one that is everything because that church doesn't exist. It exists in glory when Jesus comes back. Then it'll be awesome and we'll all think it's awesome. But until then, find a church, find a place, find a little ministry within this church where you can serve. And just commit yourself to it and go. And it's not gonna be awesome. So guess what? Show up and try to make it more awesome. Lastly, maybe you've assumed that the Christian life is about, maybe it's just, you thought it's about doing stuff for God. That it's all about just exercising gifts and being busybody and doing this and that and all that. And I wanna invite you to get off of that treadmill and say that that's not Christianity. That God isn't looking at your busyness and saying, that's so impressive. I'm so proud of you. He's saying, why are you doing that? That doesn't make me love you. So hit the stop button on that treadmill and step off to the side and come and see that the life is in Jesus. That your, that your means of being right with God is by being right with Him through Jesus. Confess all of your busy-bodied self-righteousness receive the healing and forgiveness that comes in Christ, and then step back onto the treadmill at like .1 miles per hour. Figure out, okay, I've got a gift. Where do I use that? Where do I serve? But God is not impressed with your busyness, even though you are, and likely other people are. So we repent of that. and We ask God to heal us and to actually change us. And maybe for the first time, give us joy for being a Christian instead of just exhaustion. Lastly, then this morning, Paul calls us through this passage to maturity. I'm going to read verses 13 through 16 again because they are so good. He says that, that we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. and We're moved on to mature manhood to be measured, uh, to the measure of the statue, stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried around by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and, de- and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Paul is saying that in the exercising of your gifts in the context of the body of Christ, that is where we mature in our faith. And then he goes on and gives three specific applications of what that maturity looks like. And the first, he says, is a personal maturity in verse 13. He says you mature in, in manhood or in your stature, right, womanhood, uh, to the fullness of Christ. That by doing that very ordinary, what we might call boring Christian life of committing yourself to a body, by seeking to exercise your gifts, by doing that, Paul says you are going to be matured because that is where I'm at work. By my Spirit, I am very much at work in that place and that you will be matured there. And you will grow up in stature into the fullness of Christ. You'll be more kind, more patient, more forgiving, more generous. I think there's a list in the Bible somewhere about the fruit of the Spirit or something. Those things which we all look at and say, oh, wouldn't that be awesome? Yes, it is awesome. And it doesn't happen magically, it happens normatively through the Christian life as you're living in the means that that God has called you to live in. Doctrinal maturity goes on in verse 14. He says, so that we won't be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried around by every wind of doctrine. I think of it like this, what it means to be carried around by all the the waves and the winds of doctrine. (laughs) That, this is a, I'm adding this one in, this is for free. That looks like walking into a Lifeway uh, bookstore and saying, okay, I wonder what Bible study I should do. <gasps> and it's just like you're overwhelmed by the 17,000 options out there. Like That's kind of getting carried around. That's what that feels like. Here's another way that feels like. When I was in college, um, I, I, was, I dated a girl. That's not true. I dated a lot of girls. Um, <clears throat> but I was dating one particular girl, and I was trying to figure out if I should keep dating this girl. And... You know, I didn't know. There were some things that were good and there were some things that weren't so good. And so I just, I started crowdsourcing this. And I was talking to all my friends and I was talking to a pastor and probably a teacher, I don't know. I was talking to everybody about this. And what that felt like to me was being tossed around. Because based on who I talked to, I was just getting all sorts of different advice and different opinions. And at the end of the day, nobody really knew. Nobody really, They had little pieces of truth but. Man, I was more confused at the end of that than I was at the beginning. Now, I'm not saying we don't talk to people and try to gain wisdom, collective wisdom from godly people around us. But I'm just saying it is possible. It is possible, doctrinally speaking, because there's so much out there that we just get tossed around to and fro in this whole thing. Here's what I'm getting at. That good doctrine in theology isn't the only measure of Christian maturity, but it is a measure of Christian maturity. And the more you find yourself kind of in sidebar, esoteric beliefs about big things or minor things, the more you at least should hold those things with open hands and say, ah, that may be true, but but for thousands of years that has not been the consensus of what the church collectively has thought to be true. So, something more toward the middle of like the sure things of the faith. The essentials, we might call them. The Apostles' Creed. Kind of the boiled down essentials of the faith. That's good doctrine. Now, it's not everything. There are other things to learn in there. But it's possible that we get tossed around and Paul here is exhorting us to maturity. And And I know Brad says this because I heard it for 18 years. just drilled into my head. You major on the majors. If you want to figure out what your life is to be about in Christ, look at the major things and just camp out there. And occasionally maybe take an excursion somewhere else, but you camp out at that campground. And the last thing is relational maturity. There's this aspect of Christian maturity that applies to our relationship, and it's in verse 15 and 16. Paul says that we speak the truth in love. In in Greek, that word literally means we're truthing each other in love. You're truthing each other. Um, that doctrine and truth are not to be divorced from relationship hear that again doctrine good doctrine and good truths cannot be re- cannot be separated from loving relationships so if you have orthodoxy right doctrine that doesn't flow into orthopraxy right practice including loving others then it's not orthodoxy that if your right doctrine somehow makes you an ogre or a mean person or someone who's calloused and always infighting, then it ain't right doctrine. Okay? Orthodoxy always leads to orthopraxy. And that's what Paul's getting at right here. In verse 16, he says that when the body is quipped and working properly, it builds itself up in love. There is a huge relational component to Christian maturity. Let me go back one more time to the mission to Mars. Um, The saddest part of me was that there was one guy in there who was married and who had kids. And yet he signed up to take the trip to Mars by himself. Here's what he said. I am pursuing something that's quite selfish. But you know what? If I don't come back, there's just one life that we have. But I guess if my son said, Dad, don't go, then I'd probably have to reconsider Maturing in Christ relationally means that you have to understand that you do matter. That your son is sitting there saying, Dad, don't go. That your sons and your friends around you are saying, don't go. Don't move out to the lake on the weekend. Don't go. Don't go move away. Don't go marry the golf course on Sunday mornings. Don't go. We need you here. Your quirks and your funniness and your personality and yes, your burrs and your calluses. Be a part of this. We have to build each up, build each other up in love. Don't go. Stay here. Plug in. You're wanted. And I know it's frustrating at times. And I know that you may never get the acknowledgement that you think you deserve for all the different things you do. There's a lot of people who don't see that stuff. I know that's what it means to join yourself to the church. But Paul is exhorting you and saying, don't go because there is one who sees it. And we don't see him right now, but he sees all. And he knows all. And he will greet you one day and say, well done, good and faithful servant. For you are faithful with little. My girls and I, um, we have been watching slash consumed with the show The Greatest Showman over about the last month or so. And it's not a, you know, there's things about it that probably aren't great. But there's some really neat aspects to that movie. It's a it's a movie about, you know, an adaptation of P.T. Barnum, Barnum & Bailey Circus, about his story and how he brought a bunch of misfits together and created this spectacle called A Circus. And what's really interesting about it, I mean, there's a lot of things interesting about it, One of the things that's interesting is that when it looked like it was all gonna fall apart, all of the misfits came to him and said, This is you can't stop it now. That this is the best thing we've ever had. We are a family. This is the closest to family and acceptance we've ever known. Do you see that? That sometimes we feel like we're misfits, sometimes we're told that we're misfits. But collectively we come together and Jesus says, This is family. Even as we look around and we're like, I don't feel like she's my sister or that she's my brother. I don't want him as much. Jesus says, y'all, this is family. This is as good as it gets here on earth. Come be a part of this as a misfit, as someone with all of your oddities and your quirks. Come bring yourself to this place week after week, day after day, week after year after year. Encourage one another. Build yourself up in maturity so that we can then move out into the world and not offer them our placards and our signs, but the love, the family love that we have in here. And I promise it matters. Because year after year, as seniors stand up and tell our younger students at the end of April what mattered to them the most in college, is that they found a group of people that treated each other different than every other person on that campus treated each other. You think you don't have anything to offer. You absolutely do. It's the love of God in Christ which is flowing in you and through you, and it's going to change the world. It is Jesus' plan A. It's what He's doing in and through you. Let me pray for us. Father, we do thank You that, uh, that in Your magnificent plan, you sent your son willingly to this world, and he willingly came and he suffered the atrocities of this life. He was put to an excruciating death, suffered, died. He was buried, Father, and then you raised him from the dead. And in a week, we're going to acknowledge that and celebrate it in a very unique way. But we do it again this morning. We thank you for the resurrection, and we thank you for the ascension, and we thank you for the gifting of your church. You've given us a place in it. You've called us out to be a unique people. To love one another against all odds. Against all our oddities. Father, and you've called us to go out into the world with this love. And the world may think we're weird, and that's fine. But let us be weird people who love one another and who love others. For your glory, for our good, and for the world to be changed. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen.